lift our hearts and minds to you today. Lord, bringing uh, every burden on our shoulders that we just, that gets piled on throughout our lives and throughout our weeks. And we lay them at your feet in an act of humility and trust. There are people in our church, in our community who are seeking reconciliation in their families. And we know your heart is to reconcile. We know your heart is to bring families together. And so we just ask that you work on their behalf for those who are humble and, and are leaning in towards you, that you would do a miracle, that you would that you would bring the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. We live in a, a world that's just scattered and connected and disconnected and it's complicated and, and confusing. And uh, just on my heart this morning, I just wanna pray for missionaries and people overseas who maybe feel alone that they would know they have a church, they have people here standing with them and praying for them. And if there's any grace that kind of we have stored up here, just could you reallocate it. Could you just pour it out on, on our brothers and sisters throughout this world who you know, maybe don't have it as easy as we do. And we just want to open our hearts up to them. We stand in communion of the saints. There are people, as I read through the prayer requests uh, that people wrote out during the Ash Wednesday service. I just feel there's a heart for people just crying out for healing. And I know your heart for them is to heal them. I know that your will is for human flourishing and for complete restoration of every chaotic uh, breakdown in this world. And we live in an age that is just stricken with chaos. And so I just pray your will into that, that you would heal them and that, and we lament all the stuff that we feel from now and between that, and, uh, but just wanna to stand together in solidarity and in unity that you, that you know what we're going through. Um, and I just pray your kingdom into that. If anybody of us here just needs to reorient, refocus on you, pray that into this time. That we just fix our eyes upon you as we begin our week together. In your name we pray, amen. Great job, guys. Thanks, Claire. It's awesome. Gabby, great job. First week here. That was... High fives. Hey, we got to be encouraging to one another. It's a tough time. As a community, we have been studying the Gospel of John. And so if you have a Bible or a digital version, in a new portion of John, please turn to John chapter 18. A new chapter, in a new portion of John, what I like to call the final four. It's the last four chapters of John that we're beginning today. And normally at this point in the service, I like to say, and I'm very excited to share some thoughts and, a challenge, and challenges with you that I've, uh, you know, thought through, and I am excited, and I have thought through stuff, but I'm a little more apprehensive today because of the subject matter. We begin to enter into this very dark time where the kingdom of this world clashes so uh, violently with the kingdom of God, and I don't know, maybe it's just my personality um, as somebody who has a high premium on loyalty, and this is a story about betrayal. It just makes my skin crawl. Um, but I just do want to say at the beginning, I, I, 
I have no ax to grind with anybody at this church. I really want to encourage you. Um, but part of that is looking at the hard things in Scripture and letting it be a mirror. These, I mean, it should cause us a little insecurity to see disciples of Christ doing things that, that are very sketchy. And uh, it, it, these guys lived with Christ. They listened to him. They were with him for three years. And I don't want to be so prideful to say I wouldn't be susceptible to any of the patterns that they're uh, portraying. And so we got to look at this and be ruthless. We had to look at this stuff and say there's some toxic poison that are, that's being uh, in, the, in these guys' lives. And if there's any of that in me, I want to know. And I want to remove that. And so that's my heart as we read the story of the betrayal. And so let the reader understand. Um, John chapter 18, if you'll stand with me for the reading. I'll start at verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, chapter 17, when Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. That word is... uh, it's up to 600 people. Spiron, uh, the detachment of soldiers. So imagine, a big group. Added to that, some officials, chief priests, and Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, well aware, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to them and asked, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was there standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled, that I have not lost one that you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, he struck the servant to the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish official, officials arrested Jesus, bound him, and brought him first to Anas, the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Amen. So starting here in chapter 18, verse 1, when you read the line, when Jesus had finished praying, that is signifying the end of a section of John that is unique to John the upper room discourse and the prayer at the temple. And now we are in a space of convergence. All four of the gospels tell this same story, starting here, uh, their version of the story from here to the end. I don't know if you noticed this, I could be the only one, but when there's a, when I'm reading through the Bible and there's something that is reiterated or, or said in other places, sometimes it gets a little confusing to me or distracting. You know, when you're reading 1 Kings, when you read 1 Chronicles, 
And you're like, I don't remember it that way. Or, you know, that's, that's not how it happened or whatever, right? Uh, or Christmas story. You know, sometimes you're reading Matthew and you're like, wait a minute, I thought there was three wise men. This just says Magi. What is that? And then maybe it's in Luke, but then it's not. And then you think maybe Mary's riding a donkey and there's no verse about a donkey, but maybe it's somewhere. It's just me. So <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting all riled up already. But I just want to put all the cards on the table. This is a story where there's a lot of different details from all four of the Gospels. And to get to John, first I want to just put all the cards on the table and have a little bit of a group chat for just a few minutes. What are some things that you noticed are not in these 14 verses that you know are a part of this story from the other authors? Go ahead and shout one out. What's that? The healing of the ear. Come on, John. Wait, why would you not put that on there? Thank you, Steph. Anything else? Huh? The kiss. It's not there. How do you leave that out? It's like the most ignominious act in history, okay? You betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. Not here. Judas is just standing there. John wants to see him just standing there, okay? Think about it. Anything else? Somebody brought up in the first service the word garden. That is just, they go to a garden. They don't say Gethsemane, they just garden. Some have suggested that um, that word is John specifically trying to get us into uh, language of creation, the garden, you know, because now we're starting to see a development of a new creation in this story. And can't but help but think of one of my favorite songs. It's called The Reward. And the first line is this, in a garden we fell, but in a garden he prayed. And I uh, thought that was an interesting observation. Anything else? Kidron. Nobody ever says Kidron anywhere else. It's the only time in the New Testament. Why are we talking about the Kidron Valley here? Um, the reference that I think is interesting is uh, this is the same word, the same valley, the same path that King David took the moment he found out Absalom was betraying him. You remember? No shoes. He just walks out, walks through the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, depressed, defeated. The Kidron, uh, it means dark, gloomy, this word in Hebrew. And it's uh, a river, a small river that was flowing um, right in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And at this time, this is also the river they would set up their gutters for the, uh, the washing of the blood from the sacrifices to go down into this river. So surely it has some dark tones to it. Uh, maybe John's just trying to tee us up with another feeling of darkness. Am I talking about unique things to John at this point? Yes, I am. What are some other things that are unique to John and not anywhere else? I am he. Thank you, Doug. You know, if you read this uh, phrase in, in Greek, there is no he. It just says, I am. Think about that. Sometimes people like to make a connection here to Exodus 3, where, you know, God says to Moses, tell the people the I am sent you. Wouldn't it be amazing to think Jesus here in this moment reveals that um, connection to the divine in that way. And as he says it, the soldiers fall to the ground. I mean, nobody else writes about that. Um, what do you think about that? All of a sudden, five, 600 people, armed warriors, fall to the ground at a word from Jesus. 
I am he. Nobody else mentions Peter. They say one of us had a sword. For some reason, John, he's throwing Peter under the bus specifically. He's like, I know, he's the last writer of the gospel. He's like, okay, those guys let Peter off. But he wants us to think that for some reason, why, why, is, why is it important for us to know? Is Peter. He's the one who drew the sword. So as we think about this version of this story, um, I want to put before you one thing that all four of the Gospels point out. Um, Jesus, in all four of them, references a cup that's been placed before him. If we get this cup wrong, what is he talking about? If we get it wrong, we might find ourselves in a similar place to that of Judas and Peter. And I really want to figure that out because both of these guys are influenced by satanic patterns. Uh, They are both specifically referred to as either called Satan or being led by Satan. And I want to know, what are, the, what are their misunderstandings or what are, maybe, what are they thinking? So I have a few ideas about this. What is the cup? Well, not, it's not that unlikely to talk about a cup on the night of the Passover feast. If you've ever experienced a Seder before, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Passover Seder is full of rich uh, symbolism from start to finish. It is a meal where they're constantly finding ways to interact with uh, the story of Moses and the Exodus and the story of liberation from Egypt. And so, you know, they're dressed differently. They're eating differently. Everything has some sort of connection to it. But how this meal is ordered, it's ordered around four different cups of wine. The four cups of wine represent these four promises that God makes in Exodus chapter 6. You probably remember this. It's it's God saying to Moses, tell the children of Israel these promises that I'm going to make. Number one, I will break the yoke between you and Egypt. That's cup number one. Cup number two, I will uh, set you free from being slaves. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstret- a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with um, acts, miraculous acts uh, of my might, the, the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea. And number four, I will make you my people, my special people, and I will be your God. These four cups, as you, or as how I do it in my family, we will do a cheers four times, but uh, they become the segments for the night. These are the cups. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? Maybe they think it has something to do with the fifth cup. Yes, there actually is a fifth cup. And as you read Exodus 6, there's actually a fifth promise that's made there. It's a little bit farther down than the four promises made at the beginning. But the the promise goes like this. I will bring you to the promised land. Now, this is an enigmatic promise, depending on uh, what time in history you lived. were they in this land of promise and freedom or, or, or were they not? And how does that work? And what I like about uh, just the Jewish chutzpah is that they will take this cup and set it right on the table. They'll take the tension and just say, you know what? We aren't where we're supposed to be. And God promised us that we will be. So they'll fill that cup full, but they won't drink it. And they'll let the fifth cup sit on the table as a protest, as something that they're hoping for, something they're lamenting about. The tradition develops that this cup becomes called the cup of Elijah. 
Because when the Messiah comes, they believed a prophetic figure like Elijah will come first to let everybody know it's time. So they'll put that cup at Elijah's chair in prayer and hope that Elijah's actually gonna come to dinner tonight. Sometimes they would even have somebody go to the door at the end of dinner and just check, open the door, just check and see if Elijah's out there because we're ready. And if he's not out there, they always say, maybe next year, and they close the door. And maybe next year in Jerusalem, if you don't live in Jerusalem. Why do I bring the fifth cup up? I just think, I said this many times before, it would be a very difficult holiday to celebrate given the amount of oppression that they were dealing with from Rome. Add to it who they're eating the meal with. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Judas. And the reason for that is, growing up, I never really thought about Judas as a person. I dehumanized Judas and put him in an evil bad guy category so far away from me that I'll never have anything to really interact with about my own personal life. He's just one of those guys that we all hate. We love hating him, it makes us feel better. But who is Judas? What, what, did he just wake up this day and just decide, you know what, I've been a part of this team for three years, but I'm tired of it and I'm gonna throw a wrench into the whole thing? Or is there more logic and more of a plan that's behind this? Well. Let me throw out some uh, ideas that people have about Judas. We'll see if we can start to see an actual human being here. Um, but don't worry, I don't have a, <laughs> I'm not trying to undo the whole story, just, it's okay. Judas' last name, Judas Iscariot, what does it mean? There's a lot of uh, ideas about this and nobody really knows. So one of the ideas is this is a town that he's from, Kiriat. The town, that this refers to is not in Galilee. That would mean he's one of the only people in this disciple, this 12, that are not from Galilee. What does that mean? How does that dynamic play in? Some people think that it's, this word can be revocalized in Hebrew to say the liar or uh, one who lies. And maybe that's a factor into his character as to who this person is and to how they feel about him. Um, a third option about Iscariot that people say is that this is... Uh, um, this can be vocalized as the, the, the word sicari, which is a dagger or a dagger man, a part of a zealot band of assassins that developed about 10, 15 years after Christ. Um, and maybe Judas was a part of uh, the pre-phases of this sicari group. And he's one of these like passionate assassin type people. He has the dagger. Maybe all of these things are not Bible verses, so, you know, test and approve, but it could add to a little bit of his psychology of who he is and where he's coming from. Take his first name, for example. It's one of those names that um, gets translated into Greek, and then we lose a little bit of connection to it, because in Hebrew, his name is simply Judah. It's a very popular name in their world because this is one of the most celebrated tribes of Israel, the, the tribe of David, the kingly line, Maybe it's the tribe that Judas is even from, given where perhaps that city, Kiriat, is. And so, hey, let's think about his name. But uh, uh, something I'd like to consider as a possibility, a part of his name, is not just the tribe of Judah that he's named after. About 160 years before Christ, there was a famous person named Judah. Judah the hammer. 
or in Hebrew, Judah the Maccabee. This guy led a revolt against uh, the people who were being very oppressive to them at the temple, sacrificing pigs on the altar. It was unbelievable. He led a revolt and set, set everybody free, lit the candle in the temple. This is the Maccabean revolt. This is where Hanukkah comes from. These guys were a big deal. And as they uh, achieved victory, guess what they did? They waved palm branches as a symbol of victory. File that away. Judah the Maccabee is a factor in this conversation because I could simply say it. This was the era that represented the last time that they had some semblance of freedom before Rome. So an American named Abraham. Yes, there is connections to the Abraham of the Bible, but there's also a good possibility that these, the parents who named the kid Abraham kind of like one of the most celebrated presidents of American history. But am I saying that if you name a kid Abraham, he's destined to be the next Abraham Lincoln? No. But I am saying in the time of Christ, to name someone meant a little bit more than what we take it now. To name someone is a prayer. It is a prophecy. It is something that you're hoping becomes their namesake. And so if you have a very famous person named Judah in, in relatively recent history, and you name your kid this, maybe there is a little bit of a namesake legacy that's swirling around in his mind. Why do I say all this? Because imagine you're at the, you're at the Seder dinner with Jesus. You have the namesake of Judah. You have uh, a big tension sitting on the table. Why can't we drink this cup? We have the Messiah with us. Think about it. Judas, Judas knows who Jesus is. He is the, the Moses. He sees all the Moses connections. He's been there. He knows that this is the next King David. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Why can't we drink this cup? Why are you washing people's feet? We should be gearing up right now. I like to imagine that Judas goes to the door, that he's the one who's supposed to open it and say, is Elijah there? And I can just imagine his attitude just being like, just pausing and so frustrated that we're still not doing anything about it. We have the Messiah. He looks at Jesus and Jesus says what? Go and do what you're gonna do. And he walks out the door. Judas has a plan to take matters into his own hands. So he conspires with the chief priests and the high priests. This conspiracy I like to reference as the conspiracy of, of, of victim. They, they victimize Jesus. This is what their plan is. What they want to do is put Jesus into a place where he has to fight or the people around him have to fight. Why are they taking 500 people to the, I mean, they've tried to arrest Jesus before, but they, they are constantly thinking there's going to be a riot if we do anything, if we touch him. There's going to be a riot. All the people are hanging on his every word. Okay, so what they're doing is conspiring to take him at night while everybody's asleep and get him hanging on a Roman cross before morning. And everybody's gonna be so riled up about this that they're gonna take arms. Remember, the palm branches were just being waved on Sunday. There, the, there is a belief that this guy, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the, might, could be the next Maccabean leader. This is why I think they need Rome to do the deed. I mean, it's not, they say, oh, you know, we, we can't stone anybody, we're not allowed to do that. 
but they just are saying that. I mean, remember the woman who they caught in adultery? They're, they're okay with doing stoning. So they stoned Stephen in Acts 6. They stoned the apostle Paul. They just didn't kill him. They just, they tried. They tried to stone Jesus in Nazareth. It's not like they couldn't do uh, what they what they wanted to do, they just needed, they wanted to conspire to have Rome to do it themselves so that they could have an enemy. Look at verse 14. Remember, Caiaphas said this in chapter 11, but they're just reminding us. Caiaphas believes that it would be better if one man were to die for the whole country, because then the country would have a common cause to rise up together uh, against Rome for. Now, did Judas want Jesus to die? That's up to you to decide. I'm not really sure uh, how you figure out his um, great emotional frustration as Jesus is condemned. Maybe Judas wanted Jesus to be released. And then, you know, as they're debating, let's get Barabbas, things started going south. Barabbas, I always thought was some, you know, murderer. But as you can see at the end of this chapter, it specifically says Barabbas was, the, was a leader, a revolutionary leader. Everything's falling into place for these guys. Judas is so, so frustrated at what ends up happening that he ends up taking his own life. But you might be thinking, Dan, okay, wow, this is a big conspiracy. It's very complicated. Uh, appreciate it. But why, do they call Jesus, why don't they call Judas the conspirator? Why do they call him the betrayer? Well, that's something we actually do need to figure out. They're constantly saying Judas, the one who betrayed. They don't, they don't call Peter the one who betrayed. He definitely does some stuff that seems betrayal-like here. Uh, they don't call everybody, they call this guy the betrayer. What is in the heart of this betrayal, I think, is a pattern that is satanic. And it is something that he's been following uh, Satan on. But imagine being somebody who tasted the water to wine. Being somebody who tasted the, the fish and the loaves and saw the miracles that Jesus did, heard peace be still as they were on the, the tumultuous waters of Galilee. It, Judas is somebody that's been there when they, when they sent out two by two people to go evangelize about the kingdom of God and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. He was a part of that. In Matthew chapter 5, when the Sermon on the Mount starts, what does it say? He went up to a hillside. He sat down with his disciples and spoke these words to them. Judas is sitting there, signing off on it. He hears Jesus say things like, judge not lest ye be judged. Forgive one another and you shall be forgiven. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And he's a part of this movement. He's a part of it until it actually matters. And then once it matters, he decides to take it, it matters to his own hand. The betrayal here it is kind of convicting to me. You do get to a point sometimes where you're like, I, I worship you on Sundays, I love you, I, I sign off on all of this stuff, but when, it, when push comes to shove, I might take things into my own hands. There might be a belief inside of Judas that would sound something like this. I hear you, Jesus. That all sounds like really good teaching, but... <laughs> I don't trust that to love my enemy is actually going to make a difference in this world. Judas has been believing a lie about what power really is, about how the future is supposed to go, and he won't let it go. 
Judas has in his mind how this is supposed to play out. And it's supposed to play out where he gets as much power. I'm sure he would be happy with as much power as Rome had, just as long as it has, uh, it's just been placed on, you know, Israel. If I'm sounding too complicated, let me boil it down even more. The satanic influence in Judas's life that leads to the betrayal is that he wants to have glory without a cross. This is a lie that our world wants us to believe. That you can have glory. You can have all the things that you want, just not with a cross. It goes all the way back to the conversation Jesus has with Satan in the wilderness where he says, hey, you want all the glory? You want all the kingdoms? I can give that to you. Let's just skip the hard part. It's something worth asking yourself. Do I live my life in a belief that I can have all the comfort and glory and all the wealth and not have a cross? Because that idea is incompatible with Christianity. And it is a pattern of this world that we need to challenge. Some of us think that we can have glory and we can have, you know, healing and restoration. We can have the power of God in our lives without the cross. The more I dig into this, the more I study and read the Bible and really see what these guys are talking about, it seems to me that the power of God is revealed in the cross. Remember what Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? To the world, the cross is foolishness. To Judas, to people who think that it's foolishness, it's not going to work. But to those who believe, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Our world is desperate to see what true power actually looks like. We know what worldly power does and what worldly power brings. It's, uh, it's power to me at your expense. But the kingdom of God is one that says, actually, I'm going to surrender my power to help and bless you. If you want to have resurrection in your life, the power of resurrection is poured out on crosses. Bring the cross into your marriage. Bring the cross into your family. Bring it into your workplace. Don't fall for the temptation that says that you can have the glory of God without the cross. That is an influence that leads to some very dark places and some very bad decisions. This is stuff that Judas is struggling with, but not just Judas. The conspiracy of victimizing Jesus has a goal. And what that goal is, is violence. As I already pointed out, they want to get everybody riled up to go fight Rome. And look at Peter. He plays right into their hand. It couldn't be a more clear picture of exactly what they want. Peter's got the voice in the back of his head saying, you know, I'm not going to let this happen. Over my dead body. These type of lines are going on in his, in his world. The assumption here isn't as noble as I once thought it would be. You know, when I, when I used to read the story about Peter, I'm like, that's my boy. He's doing it. He's, get, he's showing out for Jesus. He's the only guy who's willing to put up against five, 600 men. But now I start to see the influence here is, not, is kind of counterproductive. Peter's been in this place for a while. If you don't believe me, remember Matthew chapter 16. It's a very famous chapter in Matthew. Namely because in verse 21, Jesus specifically says clearly, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem to die, but in three days, I'm going to be raised again. 
He says it to him. What does Peter say? He takes Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, I'm never gonna let that happen, just so you know. <laughs> Jesus publicly rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Here we go again. Glory without the cross. Getting in the way of, that, of the glory of God which is revealed in the cross. And what does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. For anyone who wants to follow me has to pick up their cross and follow me. Anybody who seeks to save their life will lose it, Peter. But I have hope, as we'll see Peter developed over the next uh, couple of weeks, that uh, we can get out of these patterns of thinking. Peter does eventually trade in his sword for the cross. So the question for us that we gotta ask is, will we? Will we trade our sword for the cross? Or will we believe we can have glory through violence? It's worth pointing out here, Peter seems to be operating on an intense level of emotion. Am I wrong? He's just emotional. And it's worth pointing out, because I may be the only person who noticed this, but our world is very, very emotional right now. There's a lot of people that are demonstrating a very high intense emotional decisions. It's, it's the world we live in is visceral. It's, it's a gut level. It's how I feel right now. And it's, and it's justifying all kinds of things and slicing, stabbing a kid in the head on accident and his ears cut off. And you, didn't, you know, I mean, what's going on, Peter? And I grew up at the tail end of an era that believed if you have the right argument that people will listen. You know, I was taught that. You get the verses all set up, and then you get the conversation going just right, and then by the end of the conversation, they can see you're right. <laughs> and then they believe what you believe. I, I, that's just, that's what I grew up in, and I don't know. It just seems like nowadays you could try and do that very thing, and it doesn't work. Bring up all your points and all your arguments and all your clues, and, and people are just I don't care. I don't feel like you're right. <laughs> What do you do, all right? I'm pointing out something that I think is obvious, but what do you do in a world where emotion stuff, it looks like Peter? Jesus doesn't take Peter aside and say, here's an article. <laughs> Peter sees a threat. Jesus sees somebody that he can love. How do we get out of this cycle of seeing people as threats to our, to what we want what, to, what does Peter, he doesn't want to lose something. He doesn't want to lose Jesus or lose what they have. He has a, a, an assumption of a limited quantity here and it's being threatened. So he goes to violence to figure this out. But Christians, we don't have a limited quantity we have an unlimited, but we've, we've signed away everything. The Apostle Paul says, what I once considered gain, I've, it's all lost to me. I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. This is what baptism means. This is what we, maybe you need to be rebaptized. This is one of the baptism statements. I'm dying. I'm being crucified with Christ. I'm letting go of all the things of value that I would might fight for and try and keep. I'm just letting it go. 
And in order to do that, you gotta listen to what Jesus says to Peter in this chapter. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, put the sword away. Let me drink this cup. Because the cup that Jesus is referring to here is a cup spoken of by the prophets. Jeremiah uh, 25, Isaiah 51. They refer to a cup that is filled to the brim with the judgment of God for evil in this universe and anybody who wants to side up with evil. Jesus says, let me drink that. And maybe if you're in a place like Peter of threatened, intense, emotional just patterns, it'd be, nice, it'd be a healthy thing for you to say, I'm just gonna let Jesus drink the cup. I'm gonna let him do what he came to do. I'm gonna let him be the savior. Sometimes it's tempting. We have regrets, we have sin, we have things that we've done that we, that we wish we'd never done and it's tempting to take that cup and to drink it and just to continue to judge ourselves. But will you look in the mirror and say, and and listen to Jesus tell you today, let me take that cup from you. Let me take the judgment for you. It goes both ways. The people that we sometimes are tempted to force them to drink that cup. We have to get to a point where we can say, will I let Jesus drink the cup on behalf of my enemy as well? And if we can get to this place, then we can get to a place of fluently being able to portray the love of God for our enemies and for ourselves. Because Jesus wants to drink that cup. He's not a victim. We know he's not a victim, Doug, with that. When he said, I am, and everybody falls to the ground, it's a sign that he is, (laughs) he could do this all day. (laughs) But he is willingly moving forward with this, approaching them saying, whom do you seek? He's not a victim. He is not calling for violence. Jesus was a volunteer. He volunteered himself for you and I, and this was his plan to provide that Passover freedom that, that Judas so desperately wanted, that Peter, that, that they so desperately wanted to drink that cup. We can drink that cup because Jesus has brought us into the promised land. Will you let him? Let's take a moment and pray through some of this stuff as we go. If there's any of us here who are struggling with trusting you, Jesus, and maybe kind of feel a little bit like we're standing with Judas and all those people and just trying to take matters into our own hands, convict us to return to you and to trust you and to let it go. Let go our version of how we think this history is supposed to play out and to trust you for your plan. If there's any of us here who are feeling just constantly emotional and threatened by everything, could you help us to uh, refocus on you and to let you be you? Let you be the savior. Let you be the one who drinks the cup placed before you. And we're just on our knees thanking you for drinking that on our behalf and for drinking that on behalf of our enemy. Set us free from just having to hack our way through life with the swords that we've come up with so that we can trade in our sword for the cross. Show that love that you have, that self-sacrificial love to our world who wants to see it. They wanna see power, they wanna see wisdom that you 
that you portray. If any of us are struggling with forgiving ourselves, just even now, press into that, Lord. You fully drank it. It is finished. You're setting us free to go confirm that to this world. We're so proud of you, Jesus, and thank you for that.